Okay, listen. I wrote the intro for this month myself. Since every November, you insist on recording an intro that's like a three-act play revolving around whatever movie trailer is out at the time. So I, I just can't have you work on it. I'm going to perform it myself. I just wanted you to know that I'm going to do this. Darth Vader's back in this one. We're all excited about Rogue One, but we have a job to do. So did that ragtag band of rebels who stole the plans for the Death Star, I assume. I'm not doing this. That's what Jin Erso said, but she had to because of her dad or something, I think. I'm going to count from Rogue One to Rogue Ten. And if you don't stop talking about Star Wars, I'm taking that trailer away. Rogue One. But, but... Rogue Two. Is there a trailer for that one yet? Rogue Three. No! Rogue Four. What are you doing? Give me that. My intangible object! You'll get this back when you learn how to be a professional podcaster. Uh, who knows when that'll be? Now think about what you did. I'll be at church. He's going to church without me? I don't get to do anything fun. Just because I have what my doctor diagnosed me with as a healthy obsession with movie trailers doesn't mean I should be locked in this cupboard under the stairs. <sighs> Coming to theaters this whenever I learn how to be a professional pod racer. Not pod racer. Podcaster. <sighs> I'll never get it. Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the center of my soul? Mr. Owl, I'm talking to you. You snowy white devil, you don't know anything. He's not that kind of owl. Who said that? Why, I did. Eddie Redmayne? No, no, we couldn't afford him. I'm Nicholas Hult. What are you doing here in my cupboard? Didn't you get my letters? Didn't you get my letters? I loved you in the Mad Max trailer. You mean to tell me all those letters I sent you never arrived? I don't have a mailbox. I live off the grid, in the quarry. Well, not anymore, my boy. There's a wonderful place for people like you. People like me, who have, again, what my doctor assures me is a healthy obsession with movie trailers? Yes. You're a loser, Daniel. I knew it! My middle school bully Matt Zombo was right. To help you on your journey, read this book I wrote. Fantastic trailers and where to find them. Now join me. My brick wall! Don't worry about that. It is now open to a whole paradise of movie trailers and a ghetto of teasers. Behold. Wow, a broom! Well, come on, it's not just a broom. I mean, look, it flies. Yeah. Whoa, a train pulling into a normally numbered platform. Actually, it's a very unusual number, you see. It's nine and three quarters. Huh. That doesn't sound practical. And there she is up on the hill. Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Trailer Editing. The most lucrative form of witchcraft. Ugh, must be a public school. Could you, like, at least pretend to be excited about this? I broke a wall for you. I showed you an owl. That snowy white devil. The only owls I want to see are in the trailer for Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Give me the book. I'm done here. Good luck heading home. <sighs> Coming this fall, why does everyone leave me? Starring one sad boy, me. Rated PG for please, Greg, bring me home. Hi! Greg! So I was curious and I watched the Rogue One trailer and I hate to say this, you were right. It was, it was downright bitching. I knew it! So, should I use the TIE Fighters to blow up Hogwarts? Yeah! Now let's blow this thing and go home! You like that? Yeah! Now how do we get home? We have to click our ruby red lightsabers together and repeat after me. There's no place like Hoth. 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 Daniel! Daniel, wake up! Daniel! 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 
What? I took your trailer away and you passed out in anger. I had the queerest dream. Strange, strange. Just say strange. I dreamt that I was in this crappy world. And you were there, Greg. And so were you, Broom. And you too, Train. And so were you, Uncle TIE Fighter. And you too, Nicholas Hult. It's Holt. But it had to be Hult. It had to work for the owl joke. And you were there too, Darth Vader. And you, Harry Potter. And you, Salacious Crumb. And Nagini. He's not gonna stop. Just play the theme. And R2-D2. And R2-D5. And R4-D4. The Weasley twin that survived. BB-8. And the entire upper management team of Gringotts. And you... I don't know who you are. I'm Phil Collins, not that one. I'm the copyright lawyer for popular culture. You've been served. Hey. Coming at you live from midnight in the Garden of Evil and Evil. <laughs> evil Knievel. <laughs> Garden of Evil Knievel. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 35 of LA Meekly, everyone's favorite podcast. Featuring you and me. If you don't Special listen to- guest Dupree coming up. What's the one about the dog? What's it called? Marley and me. Yeah, Marley and you me. You need to pre Marley and me. <laughs> oh, God. No wonder no one likes us. <laughs> no, I, I still wonder. So, hello, Greg. Hello, Daniel. Welcome back. Welcome. How have you uh, been? <clears throat> I don't care. I think he might be sad that we don't get to talk for longer about oranges than we're about to. I just... Uh, I- Turn it off. Oh, he's allergic to oranges. That's, That's what, what it, it was. Yeah, this is no. like the Godfather. He tried to <laughs> he tried making me laugh with his scary orange mouth, but he had a heart attack. Which was less scary somehow. <laughs> the kid still sprayed him with the water gun. Even he thought he was overacting. You come to me on the day of my father's death and spray him with a water gun. As you might have guessed, it's November. Thanks. Thanks for making it November. Thanks for the giving reason. Halloween is over. We hope you all got scary. We hope you didn't get some sort of the others situation. Yeah, that's not great. I hope you didn't have to suffer through a devil's night or anything weird. (laughs) If we have any listeners in Detroit. Halloween's over. I hope that you didn't get any razor blades. Nobody wants that. No. Except from Harry's, our new sponsor. (laughs) You'll find a razor blade in everyone for more candy. Harry's razor blade presents Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Everything you grew up being afraid of brought to you by Harry's razors. Mom, there's a razor in my stickers. Oh, lucky. Did you subscribe? <laughs> the first one's free. Just use promo code ER. <laughs> it is now the month of turkeys, parades, mm-hmm. Al Roker wearing a sweater. Gravy. The rest is such. I would hope so. It all falls in line, you know, fall. Uh, the- fall. <gasps> fall. Oh, no, the fall of the Roman The quickest Empire. line between fall and Christmas is <gasps> Thanksgiving. You heard it, friend. What are you thankful for? Um... Witty banter, mm-hmm. charm. I wish that that made appearance every once in a while. <laughs> Those are my New Year's resolutions. Witty banter, charm. And world wars. <laughs> I'm tired of numbering world wars. That's just world war next. Yeah, exactly. World war again. World, world war two. Best world but war. T-O-O. World war also. So since it's November and mm-hmm. Thanksgiving is coming, we always try to talk about something, uh, you know, pilgrim related, that sort of thing. We're going to talk about the bounty of our very own city. Beautiful. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. She loves me. Her bounty. <laughs> She feeds me with it. She's beautiful. She's well endowed. The city. Baba boom. Yeah, we're going to be talking about... Oranges. The gold of... Well, the second gold of California. Yeah. Or 
orange gold. Next to real gold, it's the other gold, you know? Out of gold, white gold, black gold, and orange gold, this looks the most like regular gold. Yeah. And it, it's orange. It looks more like gold than Texas tea is gold. <laughs> it was a big part, yeah. obviously. Everyone grows up hearing about oranges, oranges, oranges. Yeah. Make sure to brush your teeth at night, the oranges will bite. <laughs> it's odd to me that whenever I brought up the episode of people, they were like, isn't that a Florida thing? I'm like, not really. Mm-hmm. It's not. Well, kind of, but. In my head, it was always a Southern California thing, and I'm hoping that you're going to introduce the idea that it was a Los Angeles thing, because what of my research, I'm like, well, it's mostly Southern California. Back to what you were talking about, telling people about we're doing an orange episode. Yeah. We've been joking about doing an episode about oranges a as a joke. Time. Yeah. And here we are. I can't believe it. I mean, it's going to be boring, right, if we ever did that? Well, here we are. So. <laughs> and surprise, surprise. This is one of those ones where we try to keep it very Los Angeles, like strictly within the borders. Yeah, but then there was no borders at the time. Yeah, yeah. it was everywhere. Like yeah. it was, Los Angeles is such a big part of it, but yeah. so was the rest of California. Exactly, yeah. We might as well be Corona, California. You no. know what I mean? Colton. Greg, you don't mean that. We might, we might as well be Hemet. You're going to call us ZZXYZ or whatever? <laughs> Zizix? Yeah, yeah, we might as well be Zizix Road. Uh, well, am I going to pack up and move to weed? <laughs> am I going to set up shop in Eureka? Come on. <laughs> Come give it. I don't have the constitution to live in Humboldt. I'll start at the beginning, of course, as I do, as every great raconteur does. That's what I call myself now. Raconteur. I like the sound of that. That's good. Can you change your last name to Raconteur? <laughs> hey, Johnny Raconteur, you know that new Raconteur you're Raconteuring about? Well, Raconteur on this. <laughs> I've heard that already. <laughs> no, it's mine. Oranges. God damn it. Orange, you glad I don't have an opening line for this one? <sighs> Oranges and citrus in general is not indigenous to the Americas. Get, the, get not, that through your head. I gotta get it out. The first citrus to be brought here came with Christopher Columbus on his second voyage across the ocean blue in 1493. Can I boo him, but yay, oranges? You can boo the Nina and the Pinta. But what about Santa Maria? My God, if you say one bad thing about Santa Maria. <laughs> Santa Maria! <laughs> yeah, Santa Maria! <laughs> 1493, Columbus's second voyage. Not long after that, it was required as part of the new homemaking of the colonizers for all Spanish sailors heading into the New World to take a hundred citrus seeds with them. Like, you better make room. I count 94 here. Oh, we got hungry. We got scurvy. <laughs> They're just seeds, They're just Manuel. Seeds. Oranges were very important to the Spanish. Mm-hmm. So, of course, when the first mission in San Diego was founded in 1769, they brought some orange trees with them, making them the first orange trees in California. 1769. Apparently, orange seeds are very heavy because it took them all the way until 18. 1804 to travel all the way north to our very own Mission San Gabriel for the first orange trees to be planted in what is now Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. That's 1804. Wow. It didn't exist. It's so weird to think like... Yeah, we didn't have that. We created a new <laughs> environment. Uh, I hope you can grow here because if you can't, you know, wasted our time. We're going back to Spain. Good. <laughs> Sayonara. <laughs> which you don't even know yet. You haven't even conquered that yet. Sayonara, which you'll learn if you keep going east. <laughs> so these seeds were most likely taken from those original trees in San Diego, the ones they brought to San Gabriel. But down south, it was just a few scattered trees that they had in San Diego. There wasn't much native growing produce here, so they wanted to plant a ton of stuff. So what we had here in San Gabriel was the first full-blown orange orchard in California. So this consisted of about 400 orange trees spread out over six acres of land. Now, the types of oranges that were growing at this time are believed to have originally come from southeast China thousands of years ago. They were sweet and thin-skinned, but they were filled with seeds. So many seeds. Mostly seeds. It's like skin and seeds. That's my favorite, Stephen. King novel. <laughs> they were sweet, thin skin, filled with seeds, much like the very fertile hosts of this podcast. But they were oranges nonetheless, just like us, and they were the nicest thing you could eat in the city at the time, I would assume. You can either have oranges or like a dirty donkey. Yeah, you can kill a mule and eat it. Uh, Not the nice one, because the kings. Wish we had kings back then. King Not donkey. Like, king donkey. <laughs> oh, they're just like parfaits. 
<laughs> I, they're just like them. I get it. So the San Gabriel mission had a monopoly on the oranges until 1834 mm-hmm. when the missions became secularized and the most secular man in town, our old wine pioneering friend, Jean-Louis Vigneb, he bought 35 orange trees from the mission and moved them to his land in what is now downtown LA, creating only the second orange orchard in California. So okay. the first two were both in LA. Okay. Find out more about that drunk in our alcohol episode. Candy is dandy, but liquor is click here. Vigna leaned more towards winemaking, yeah. but now it's time to give a side character from that episode his moment in the orange sun. William Wolfskill. I told you he'd be back. He did. He was born March 20th, 1798 in Boonesboro, Kentucky, and was the oldest of 12 siblings. Conveniently enough, for the name of that town, his parents' neighbor was Daniel Boone. So he grew Whoa. up next door to Daniel Weird. Boone. Yeah. Remember the Alamo, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Remember the Alamo and to bring in your trash Mostly the second part. (laughs) When William was 11, the ever-obsessed Daniel Boone Wolfskill clan moved to Boone's Lick, Missouri, where little Willie learned the skills of a frontiersman. In the early 1820s, Wolfskill became friends with a trapper named Ewing Young in Taos, New Mexico, who convinced him in 1822 to move to Santa Fe, where the two worked trapping beavers and herding cattle and occasionally running moonshine. Mm, Beavers. (laughs) During this time, little Wolfie heard stories from the frontiersman Jedediah Smith about the beauty of this new place called California. Smith had been the first American to travel from the east to California by land without having to eat all of his friends along the way. (laughs) He told him about how much fur trapping there was to be done there and how much money was to be made. Problem was, Mexico now owned California, and to trap legally in California, you had to be a Mexican citizen. So Wolfskill did just that, and he changed his name to Jose Guillermo Wolfskill. And now he's Mexican. (laughs) (laughs) That's all it took. Now the next huge problem he had to face was how to get there. To California? Yeah. I thought he worked that out. He just worked out his name. He got all his costume ready. I'm in a mariachi band now, I suppose. (laughs) Can I hitch a ride with Lucy and Ethel? (laughs) The Grand Canyon was in his way. And he couldn't go south because there were hostile tribes of humans down there who had given a lot of trouble to the Pobladors coming from Mexico a few decades earlier. So he gathered up some 20 men. And in 1831, he left Santa Fe, went through Colorado and Utah to avoid the Grand Canyon and from there through the Mojave Desert to the San Bernardino Mountains through what is now Cajon Pass and mm-hmm. finally arriving at the San Gabriel Mission. So this was a brand new route that Wolfskill blazed that wow. is now known as the Old Spanish Trail and was made one of the U.S.'s National Historic Trails. Wow. Yeah, so in February 1831, Wolfskill and his men arrive at San Gabriel and are greeted warmly, but where there was no warmth was between Wolfskill and his men because along the way, Wolfskill had gotten them lost and snowed in and they had to be forced to eat their horses and mules. Wow. Wow. Get ready for Los Angeles cuisine. I hope you like horses and mule. Not really. <laughs> I liked one, but not like that. That sort of thing, apparently that'll sour a relationship. So when they got to LA, they all left him alone and in a ton of debt. And he needed cash, so he took some odd jobs to make money, such as supposedly he led a massacre of Shoshone horse thieves in Black Star Canyon in what is now Orange County. Great. But that story is not confirmed because it kind of goes against Wolfskill's personality of being actually pretty accepting and tolerant. For being one of the first American settlers in California, he was pretty accepting of, you know, other people. Yeah. And also, he was known for never taking advantage of the natives and the Mexicans once the U.S. Nice. took over. Yeah. But it doesn't help his case that in 1836, he did lead a lynch mob to kill two murderers that he felt the Mexican government was taking too long to convict. You know, justice is a hard thing. Where the wolves don't kill, the wolves kill. 
with a wolf skill. But he decided to earn money the way he knew best. So in 1832, he built the Refugio, which was the first schooner in Los Angeles, which is a type of boat. And he used it to hunt sea otters in San Pedro Bay. Unfortunately, there weren't any sea otters in San Pedro Bay. So he sold his schooner, schooner. You'd think he'd do the research on that first. Yeah, he changed his name. (laughs) He changed his name to Sea Otter Wolf Skill. He thought he could blend in. You gotta change your name to an international waters name. (laughs) Underage activity wolf skill. (laughs) Within a year, he sold the boat and he eventually decides again to farming. In 1838, he was given 100 acres of land by the Mexican government between 3rd and 9th in San Pedro and Alameda, with his adobe being at 239 Alameda, which would today be between 3rd and 4th. This was right next door to Venus, and Wolfskill decided to honor thy neighbor by copying thy neighbor and started growing grapes, just like Venia was. As we discussed in our alcohol episode, he gave Venia a run for his money for a while, but his heart wasn't fully in grapes. It was in something else. What would it be? Something... Orange. Grapefruit. It was an orange. Oh, 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 like the color and the fruit. Oranges are yellow. I mean, grapefruits are yellow. I mean, yellows are lemon. I wolf skilled that joke. So in 1841, Wolf skilled got some seedlings of the sweet Spanish oranges from the San Gabriel Mission and planted two acres worth of them at what is now Fifth and Alameda. It smells much different there now. It was a big year for Wolf skill because in January of 1841 as well, he married into a very influential Mexican family by hitching up with Magdalena Lugo, daughter of Don Jose Ignacio Lugo of Santa Barbara. And in doing this, he gained a lot of esteem and stature in the community. As a side note, they also had six kids together who Wolf skilled decided to give education to personally out of his house which turned into a kind of private school not only for his own kids but for some other local kids yeah. as well which is why he's considered to have started the first American school in California wow yeah, yeah it was just him ranting about oranges and <laughs> killing natives you don't know you've lost it till you've eaten your own mule <laughs> have okay. we graduated <laughs> can I go home is this gonna be on the test <laughs> oh life is a test <laughs> so yes and it's Scantron <laughs> now what type of orange exactly was being grown on Wolfscale's land is the subject of two companies completely conflicting and conveniently confusing theories. So there's one camp that believes that Wolfskill took the mission seedlings and some other strands of orange he managed to get his hands on and created a hybrid that he named after a town in Spain, Valencia, Valencia Oranges. Valencia, Spain was known for its sweet oranges that they originally got from either India or China, depending on what story you want to go with. So there's like alternate stories within this alter, these alternate stories. Then there's the second group that believes Valencia's came from the Azores Islands in Portugal and were brought to England in 1865 by a man named Thomas Rivers, where they were renamed Excelsiors before they were brought to Florida in 1872, where they were called Hearts Tardif. I'd hate to call it something fun like Excelsior. <laughs> You're right. Call it Hearts Tardif. You ever Tardif. had a Hearts Tardif? Hearts Tardif. So then from there, they were brought by a man named Albert B. Chaplin to San Gabriel, where he renamed them Reeve Late, and then La Naranja Tarde de Valencia after one of his employees, and then simply Valencias. People from the dreaded Orange County claim that the Valencia was popularized by Charles. C. Chapman of Chapman University, but there are so many different variations on these two versions of where the Valencia came from, it almost isn't even worth bothering trying to figure it out because I couldn't. What's important is that somehow, someway, Wolfskill's ungodly experimentation or Orange County black magic, the Valencia (laughs) orange became popular. So that's what you have to know. It had a much richer flavor than the other oranges that were around, which other kinds had names like Malta Blood, Mediterranean Sweet, and Paper Rind St. Michael. Yeah, I think these guys were not admin. The Valencia 
Texas only had between zero to seven seeds than them. So it wasn't, okay. you know, it wasn't it like biting into a ball of teeth or something. <laughs> they grew from March to September. They still do. They haven't changed. Even though today Valencia's are mostly used for juice. They were so superior to the oranges we had before that they quickly established dominance in LA and all of California. So like that was our orange for a while. They're also the namesake of Valencia, Santa Clarita, my favorite place in yeah, Los Angeles. I mean, when I'm on vacation here in California, I always go to Valencia. You gotta go there. You gotta go to the elephant bar. You gotta go. I'm sorry. That's just the way I feel. So back to Wolf Skills Grove. This was a time in Los Angeles when people didn't know what was going to take hold as the city's cash crop. Yeah. Like it's weird to think like people were trying, they tried bananas, they tried pineapples, they tried mangoes and coconuts, yeah. but it was too dry to grow any of these things. People also tried to discourage Wolf Skill by telling him that oranges would never be popular in LA because so few people lived down there that he wouldn't have anyone to sell it to. I mean, if your horse wants to buy one, it's fine. No, but- I ate him. They said, no, yeah, it'll never work, you crazy young man. Yeah. And then the gold rush happened, and craggly old minor Boy. 49ers were getting scurvy left and right. <laughs> a good way to prevent scurvy is by eating citrus. Orange is a citrus. Oh, the <gasps> killer was Jack Ruby. <laughs> Wolfskill saw the potential of being able to sell his oranges up north, so he loaded up a ship and sent it to San Francisco. And in doing so, he became the first person to run an orange grove for commercial purposes and started the citrus industry. That wow. was the beginning. His product was so popular popular that he was able to sell oranges to those smelly old scurvy boys for up to one dollar each which in today's dollars that's like thirty dollars for an orange yeah but i mean it's better than hospital orange care what are the what is this gas prices what is this traffic <laughs> this got wolfskill off and running and he was able to expand his grove soon wolfskill had a hundred acres of land that he also grew grapes and walnuts on but 70 of those were for oranges holding some 2,500 trees making this the largest orange grove in north america it's crazy in 1859 he won the prize for best oranges at the state fair a proud day in 1862 california had 25,000 orange trees and wolfskill owned two-thirds of those oh my god <laughs> yeah. he carved his name in every single one <laughs> By 1864, he was the second highest taxpayer in L.A. County. When he died on October 3rd, 1866, he owned three-fourths of all of California's citrus trees. And he's buried at the Calvary Cemetery in East L.A. and is not only considered the father of the orange business, but next to Vina, one of the pioneers of secular citrus in general. Big secular citrus. A side note worth mentioning about Wolfskill involves a different sort of tree. In 1865, Wolfskill decided he wanted a nicer place to live than orange-smelly downtown, so he bought Rancho Santa Anita near what is now the racetrack from a guy named Hugo Hugo Reed. I wrote down Huge Reed. <laughs> Actually not huge at all. He's pretty small. <laughs> it was an ironic nickname they gave him. <laughs> Wolfskill got a wild idea to start planting these trees he had heard about from Australia called eucalyptus and then try selling their lumber. So he managed to get some seedlings and planted five outside of his new home at Santa Anita. These were the first eucalyptus trees planted in California and while the lumber business never took off, he found that they made good windshields for the orange groves so it started becoming common practice to surround orange groves with eucalyptus trees, wow. which is why there's so many eucalyptus trees in LA. That's crazy. It's it's really, uh, that was very shocking to find yeah. out. The trend was also helped out in the 1880s when friend of the show, Abbott Kinney, became state forester from 1886 to 88, and he started giving out tons of free eucalyptus seeds to help, you know, uh, for whatever reason, plant these. The orange business kept growing, but in the 1870s, it really took off for two reasons. The first was that this was the decade when the transcontinental 
Continental Railroad was finished. In 1876, yeah. Southern Pacific reached LA, and now we had a direct line to the East Coast. At this point, the Wolfskill we all knew, and I guess kind of loved, was dead, but his son, Joseph Wolfskill, had some of the same foresight as Papa Wolf. So in 1877, Joseph sent out the first shipment of oranges out of California on a boxcar straight to St. Louis. And by straight to St. Louis, I mean it took a month to get there. Each orange was individually wrapped in paper, which soon became standard practice, and put into a divided wooden box. Mm -hmm. To keep them fresh, they were covered in a lot of ice that had to be replaced 11 times along the way, and they showed up in St. Louis still pretty fresh. So this opened up a whole new market for the California orange growers, and the Easterners liked what they were getting. Give me more. Daddy likes this. I want some to Daddy. We don't have cocaine yet. We want more oranges. (laughs) The East Coasters, they had their precious Florida alligator balls. That's what they call oranges. No class. (laughs) No, they have no class. (laughs) There was a difference in the oranges that were coming from California, from Los Angeles and California. The racism creating humidity of Florida allowed for more pounds of oranges to be created per acre, but those oranges became mostly used for juice because they were ugly. Bottom of the crate. Juice them. The LA and California oranges could be sold at the market because our climate at the time promoted really beautiful orange skin. Are you talking about food, right? What do you mean? (laughs) What are you implying? Um, There was the big trend back then, orange skin. Also, the LA temperature caused more sugar to accumulate and acid to form inside of the oranges, which makes for a better tasting fruit. Yeah. There's like, there's so many more factors than I ever imagined in oranges. Just that sentence is bizarre to me, but I'm just going to go with it. Here's also The air made the sugar better. What? (laughs) (laughs) Haven't you read my conspiracy blog that the government's been (laughs) pumping sugar into the air over Los Angeles? It's not smog, people. It's not smog, it's licorice. If you paint this wall yellow, it's going to make candy taste better. (laughs) Okay. Taste the wall. It tastes like snozzberries. And it wasn't built that way. So our oranges also had more of that white stuff between the rind and the actual fruit, which allows them to last longer when they're being shipped. Okay. Remember at this time that most Americans hadn't even seen an orange yeah, before. It's that, that's an odd concept I know, to me. Yeah. It's so weird. My, I remember my grandma said that when she first came to America, the first thing was someone was like selling bananas straight off the boat. Like they were selling bananas. She's like, what is a banana? <laughs> <laughs> I like saying it, but what is it? Oh, uh, my grandma's a minion. She was the inspiration. She too was fresh off the boat in overalls. That was the uniform of our people. Beedy boo boo bee. I want you to leave. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> no one had seen oranges before. They were a luxury item and were often given as a Christmas gift, which is also bizarre. Yeah. So good-looking oranges like ours were highly valued. How many times do I have to unwrap this thing? There's four more layers. <laughs> also, it's filled with teeth. So people really wanted them, so we kept shipping them out on the new railroad. In 1887, ventilated rail cars came out, allowing oranges to stay fresh longer. By that year, just a decade after the first shipment was sent out, 2,000 rail cars were going out every year. Then in 1889, refrigerated shipping box cars called reefers came out. And from then on, what happened could only be described as reefer madness. <laughs> it's got all the kids talking. Uh, you want a reefer? I can afford a box. <laughs> Come on. Come on, what, he's crazy? No, make you feel good. I mean, yeah. I have property makes me feel good. To own something will make me feel good. You're right. So now oranges could keep for longer and sales went up even more. By 1892, 4,000 trainloads were being shipped out a year. Also in 1892, they sent some oranges out of LA to the East Coast and then onto a boat to Liverpool and then down to Queen Victoria herself who ate them and boldly proclaimed them to be very palatable. 
And how British that is. Yeah. They're right, she, this is food. And she sent back the rinds <laughs> out of politeness. <laughs> Did you want this? In 1904, 31,422 carloads of oranges were shipped out of California. In 1906, to keep up with this demand, Southern Pacific slash Union Pacific created a subdivision called Pacific Fruit Express Company and built 6,000 new reefers and became the country's biggest buyer and maker of ice. That rainy reefers hadn't been built again until Bob Marley. <laughs> <laughs> By the early 1920s, there were around 50,000 carloads of oranges leaving the state annually. So it just like exponentially more and more oranges. Towns dependent on orange sales started popping up along the railroad tracks like the hometown of a certain little old lady, Pasadena. So oh. they, yeah. yeah, I got it. Yeah. You try to keep up. <laughs> Puns are flying left and right. There's a lot of Beach Boy references in here. You got to keep up. <laughs> Those are not the Beach Boys. Oh my God. Is that Dan and Jean? If it's not the Beach Boys, I assume it's Dan and Jean. It's not Dan and Jean, it's Jan and Dean. Wow. No, I'm talking about someone else. <laughs> not the <laughs> musicians. Yeah, <laughs> These guys I know. Dan they're and more, Gene. I knew it sounded weird. <laughs> they're more port laureates, really. Oh, boy. God. Somebody stop me. So now the second reason oranges took off like this in the 1870s was for something that LA can't quite claim responsibility for, but it still has to be mentioned. I'll try not to glorify it too much because it started in the town that begs to not be glorified, Riverside. <laughs> there had been attempts to try to introduce a new species of orange that could dethrone the Valencia, but none of them were superior until suddenly they were. Oh, what? In 1820, a mutant was born. No. No, it wasn't beast as portrayed by Kelsey Grammer. It was a mutant orange that grew so big it ate all of Riverside. <laughs> so it was a mutant orange that started growing on a sour orange tree down in a monastery in Bahia, Brazil. Bahia? Whatever. Brazil. The homeland of the Olympics. What was mutant about it was that it seemed to have began growing a conjoined twin that was never quite formed. Kind of like you, how you were born. <laughs> in, as Brazil? A, in Brazil? As a boy from Brazil? Yeah, a little Brazilian boy <laughs> that ate his own twin. As a result from this conjoined twin thing, it had a strange disfiguration that looked like a belly button on the bottom. Hmm, you might see where this is going. A local missionary saw this weird orange and decided, I must eat this immediately. So he cut it open and found that it was not only really sweet, but it was also seedless. And wanting more of them, he made a cutting of this orange, normally a fruit tree or anything. They're grown by planting the seeds of the fruit and watching them grow big and plump. But this mutant orange had no seeds. So what had to be done was a process where you graft the buds of this fruit onto the trunk or the roots of a normally producing tree. And then these grafted buds kind of take over and that tree starts bearing duplicates of whatever seedless fruit it is you put in there. In essence, a clone army. So decades later, in 1873, some of the seedlings from these oranges were sent to William Saunders of the United States Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Now enter a woman named Eliza Tibbetts. Since she's not really a part of L.A. history, I'll just give you a rundown of her greatest hits to give you an idea of who she was. Born in Cincinnati, married three times, divorced twice, marched alongside Frederick Douglass in 1871 in a march for women's suffrage. This is the 1800s, remember yeah, that. She adopted an African-American child. She was a white woman. Again, this is the 1800s. Yeah. This is the witch stuff. <laughs> She's a witch. Yeah. She was brief. She was briefly a spiritualist who led seances in New York City. Oh boy, you must be a spiritualist to know that. <laughs> she also she tried with her husband to start an integrated borderline communist community in Virginia just a few years after the Civil War ended. That's, wow. She was way ahead of her time. An incredibly interesting person who we'll never fully discuss because she's a traitor from the boonies. She's not an LA person. She and her husband were living in D.C. in the early 1870s and were neighbors with Saunders of the USDA. Her husband had lost all of their money so in 1872 they decided to move to a cheaper place, perhaps the cheapest place, Riverside, California 
California. Oh boy. After a year, they decided they wanted to try to make an agricultural life for themselves there, so they wrote back to their friend Saunders at the USDA for recommendations on what he thought would grow well in that environment. Saunders happened to be communicating with the monastery in Brazil about their orange clones at the time, so he decided to ask for some seedlings, and he sent three of them to his friend out in California. Eliza picked them up from the train in LA and took them back home to the clutches of Riverside, where she watered them with her old dishwater and watched them grow. One got trampled by a cow, but two is the new three, especially in Riverside. The trees began bearing their mutant fruit, and words started getting around about this new thing. Hey, orange berry. Hey, Marvin Citrus, you know that new fruit you're looking for? Well, here it is. Yeah. So alternately, <laughs> you get the point. Alternately known at the beginning for its various points of origin as the Washington, the Riverside, or Bahia, the name that was constant for whatever location it was credited with was that it was a navel orange. Okay. So this is the navel orange okay. that we're talking about. The navel again being the malformed rinds of the second aborted twin. Delicious. As long as, as, long as we're being clear about it, yeah. <laughs> I never really liked navels because you open it and there's that's the navel grossed me out, but those smaller sections of the orange that you'll find is the main parts, and then there's like little sections. Yeah. Of, of orange in there. That's the malformed second orange. Oh, That's really? what you're eating. Okay. You can always spot a navel because it has a navel and it always will have a navel because like I said, all navel oranges are identical genetic clones of that original mutant found back in the early 1800s. Weird. So every single navel orange you eat is a clone of a 200 year old orange. Weird. It's really weird. Yeah. In addition to being very sweet and seedless, they were also easier to peel and they grew in the winter. So now there could be navel production in the winter and Valencia in the summer. So the orange industry was ready for its close up. Yeah. A neighbor of Eliza, Sam McCoy, actually took some buds from her navel and started his own, and he took better care of it, so his actually bore fruit first, which he took to the Southern California Horticultural Fair on January 22nd, 1879, and he won first prize, and from there, the navel took off. No more navel gazing, navel eating. The superior of the navel became clear quickly, and Eliza Tibbetts started selling cuttings from her two original trees. They were revered by people, so other growers wanted them. People were paying up to $5 just to get a bud to start their own wow. navel tree, which is about $100 today, just for a little clipping. One year, they earned $20,000 just from the sales of the cuttings. Almost all navel oranges now grown in California are clones of these two trees. The story didn't end quite so nicely for the Tibbetts, who were constantly being sued for various water and land issues until <laughs> the real estate market crashed in 1887, where they lost everything and both died penniless over the next couple of decades. Wow, okay. Welcome to Riverside. <laughs> kind to all. <laughs> all that's left is a statue of Eliza in downtown Riverside and what I'm not sure but might be one of her two original trees, which got replanted in front of the Mission Inn in 1903 by Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this tree, which may or may not be one of the originals, is still there, even though it almost went the way its brother did in 1921 and nearly died from some pests in 2014. It's also a California landmark. It's definitely a very old tree. But some people say like, yeah, it's one of her two, or maybe oh. it's just a really old tree. I'm yeah. not sure if it's full story. So get on it, Riverside Meekly. <laughs> to even further this two-fisted boon in the 1870s, a new process was developed to help speed up the time it takes for a fruit tree to bear fruit that they called budding. So this is when they take a faster growing root and then graft the kind of fruit tree you want to grow onto that. So normally it would take an orange tree 15 years to bear fruit at full capacity, but with this method it takes five. And with that what they call the second gold rush began. In 1870, there were around 30,000 orange trees in LA. By 1880, there were almost 200,000 and in 1890, there were over a million. Like the the, the growth is so immense. Hey, we have the room. Orange groves were seeing profits of between one to three thousand per acre 
Baker. They started doing citrus fairs in LA, which I think you're going to get to. That's how like central of a part of the lifestyle here that it was. Yeah. Orange growers in California were making four times as much as the average worker in the rest of the country. Wow. For a brief moment, LA was the center of the orange empire, but after a real estate boom in the city during the 1870s and 80s, it kind of hindered our orange development. So the crux of it all really shifted to what was called the Orange Belt, which is the area around San Gabriel and the San Bernardino Mountains. Yeah. So these areas, they have a mild climate and the soil was really like sediment rich with the mountains protected them. So the towns in these areas really prospered a lot. Pasadena and Whittier gave it a run for its money, but we have to cede the crown to Riverside on this one because they were really the capital of kind of all of this. Because they had a lot of space because nobody wants to live there. <laughs> well, I know two people who died and made some room. In 1895, Riverside had the highest per capita income in the country, Damn. all because of oranges. oranges. I'll touch briefly on who was actually doing the hard labor to grow these oranges, because it's insulting not to, but also just briefly, because that's an episode all on its own. Orange trees, they're very labor intensive, and they need attention year-round in order to really produce, mm-hmm. uh, like I do. In the early, early days, the field hands were all quiche and other local natives. But once those people started mysteriously disappearing, the growers switched over to Chinese labor, which was convenient because citrus existed in China and many people had experience with this sort of thing. By 1885, 80% of the field workers were Chinese, and then they started mysteriously disappearing as well after things like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 took effect and the Scott Act of 1888 that denied re-entry of Chinese laborers who stepped foot outside the U.S., and then the Geary Act of 1892 that strengthened the Chinese Exclusion Act. We're so grateful for your work, though. (laughs) Thank you for your service. Don't cross the border. (laughs) Strangely enough, oppressing your workforce tends to diminish your workforce. So since since there weren't as many Chinese left by the early 1900s, the work shifted to Japanese people and Filipino people and Sikhs and regular old honkies. A few of them were in there. But of course, as the years went on, it shifted almost unanimously toward Mexican workers. Men working the fields, women packing them up. With the women, actually, they often earned just as much as the men did, which is like weird progressiveness, but also, my God, the racism that they experienced. Yeah. It was things like that that led to the violent strikes that happened in Orange County during the Great Depression. But again, get on it, OC Meekly. We're not covering that. We're yeah, busy. No, we got our own mess to deal with. Sorry, I'm playing with an orange right now. So mm-hmm. I feel like I'm talking to an orange right now. You know, delicious, Carry. engaging, charismatic. Shelled. Fell from a tree earlier today. <laughs> but it wasn't just in the fields where there were some issues. The actual process of selling the oranges was deeply flawed. Obviously, the oranges were popular, but that was kind of the problem with all yeah. this. The average grower didn't have a huge operation going. The average grower had between five to 10 acres. So for them, this wasn't really big business. And actually getting their product into the markets in the East took a lot of money and effort that they didn't always have. But that's where the money was. So they had to do it. So there was so much business going on that it oftentimes cost more to run a grove than they were earning selling it. So oranges became almost too popular for their own good and people started to take advantage of that. As a grower, you were at the mercy of the wholesale sellers. So at first, what would happen was the grower would grow the oranges, then one of these shipping agents would come and give a price, and then the picking, shipping, and selling were now the agent's problem. The growers got the money, it's their problem. figure this out. The grower had his money, so he didn't care what the shipping agents did with the fruit, but once the boom happened, the power shifted to the shipping agents, so they decided to change 
changed their terms. The growers were now responsible for the picking, packing, shipping, and selling, and there was so much supply that the agents would often underbid the growers and force them to accept these terms where the agent had no responsibility on the quality of the fruit once it was shipped. So if all the fruit got spoiled on its way east, the agent didn't have to pay the grower anything, and the grower lost all of their money. Or just as likely, the agent would say that the fruit all spoiled and pay the grower nothing, but then actually take that fruit and sell it, you know, on the black market for their own personal profit. profit. There was absolutely no government oversight and no quality assurance to the customers. And as a result, the reputation of all California oranges suffered. These were known as the red ink years. There had been some attempts amongst the growers to protect themselves from this sort of thing. There were groups like the Los Angeles Pomological Society that would meet to try to discuss how to fix the system. Then in 1885, the first actual union was created as the Orange Growers Protective Union, but they and all the others like them failed. And then a depression hit in 1893 and things got even worse. The growers were now firmly in the palms of the shipping agents, especially now since less people were buying luxury items like oranges. Lots of nurseries started burning young orange trees because they just couldn't sell them. Like there was no reason for that. them. It was vitamin C for recession. And then Big Daddy was born. Go to bed, kids. Daddy's born. On April 4th, 1893, a hundred citrus growers from all over Southern California met on the second floor of a building at Main and Second in downtown LA and came up with a plan for the growers to band together to pool their fruit and share the costs of shipping and marketing. That fall, they were fully operational as the Southern California Fruit Growers Exchange, and they were an immediate success. They were out of the pockets of corrupt shipping agents and into those of people who were hired to look out for their best interests. They built hundreds of packing houses that all the growers could share in places like Pacoima, Reseda, Canoga Park, and San Fernando, profits were finding their way to the people who actually deserved it. Yeah. They were so successful that growers in Northern California started joining them as well, which is why in 1895 they incorporated and had to rename themselves the California Fruit Growers Exchange. By 1905, they represented over 5,000 growers in California and had annual sales of over $7 million. There were competing organizations, but none of them were successful because the Growers Exchange was open to experimentation and new ideas. For example, even with refrigerated shipping, they were losing up to 25% of their product each time. So the union appealed to the USDA to figure out a better way to ship oranges, who granted federal help since they saw this as an interstate issue. They sent a man named G. Harold Powell. G. Harold Uh, Powell? Harold Powell. Is he in Dan and Gene? Is he the G in Dan and Gene? Yeah, he's he's the uh, live man's curve. (laughs) The large young man from Altadena. (laughs) So they sent this guy out, they sent Dan and Gene out to investigate any saw the problem not being with the methods of transportation, but in the methods of picking the actual fruit. Oh, he wow. suggested that pickers wear gloves and that they use better clippers that wouldn't harm the fruit when they were taken off the tree. Never pull an orange off a tree, but rather clip the stem close to the fruit because that can damage the tree and keeping the picked fruit in the shade until it can get into the packing house. The union adopted these methods and they worked and even more money started coming in. They even instigated a crazy idea of growers being paid by the day and not by the box to encourage more careful handling wow. and better you know, more attention paid rather than just rushing to get it out. The union also invested in scientific research to start breeding a better orange and created the Citrus Experiment Station in 1906, which eventually became UC Riverside. Wow. The Growers Exchange became the heart of the California citrus industry. Then in 1907, they formed an offshoot called the Fruit Growers Supply Company, who helped supply growers with things like fertilizer and irrigation systems and even bought a lumber mill in Siskiyou County upstate to provide lumber for the shipping crates of their growers. They even dabbled in marketing ideas and in 1908 came up with a cute term to help sell their product. Sun-kissed. Like kissed by the sun? Kissed by a rose. (gasps) 
Seal. <laughs> Seal. Use your words. <laughs> and that brings us to our next section of this episode. I'm going to be talking Kissed about... Kissed by the sun. Kissed? Frenched by the sun. <laughs> Macked by the sun. I'm totally, totally macking with the sun. I'm going to talk about how the Growers Exchange use advertising to boost Southern California as a destination, whether intentional or unintentional. Son of a gun. Go on. Keep working on that. The real heyday was from 1915 to 1950. So I'm going to concentrate, pun intended, mostly on that. <laughs> oh, sun-kissed like the orange soda? Yeah, but also like not even. <laughs> I mean, ka. 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 I mean, ka. I mean, ka. I mean, come on. Los Angeles really is a weird place to me because much longer than the movie industry has been sending the homing beacon out, drawing people in, Southern California has been luring people to the Pacific. Yeah. People from the Midwest and East Coast had flocked westward, not just because of Manifest Destiny or Westward Ho, but they chased this illusion of an idyllic paradise they saw from the labels of orange crates, which was all <laughs> a creation. All of this wanting to come to Southern California was like planned, which is really weird to me. It's weird that like, you know, you could see the wrapper of like a... An orange, yeah. Yeah, or, but imagine today seeing like a picture on the back of a Snickers bar and being like, like they're gonna move to a Hershey, sense. Pennsylvania. <laughs> With California fruit crate labels, not just fruit was being sold, but like any good Don Draper pitch, you were buying the first step to your better self. Fruit crate labels not only sold oranges, they it's sold perfect. real estate. Perfect. It's, it's a little perfect. bit different, but it's perfect. Peggy, it's an orange. It's perfect. It's a little bit different, but it's perfect. At the time, yeah, I need these for alcohol, <laughs> for alcoholic reasons. I'm gonna ferment them. A little bit different, but it's perfect. At the time, nothing defined Southern California better than oranges. In the 19th century, as you were talking about, most Americans didn't even know what an orange was. In the early 1800s, some fruit growers working on their own groves. Oh, you talked about all this already. What? Individually wrapped. But say it again, because the individually wrapping really became kind of, as I understand, it was kind of like, it's individually wrapped. Like, this is yeah. a, this is something special. But the thing about that, I'll get into that later, but I'll just say it now. They wanted to step away from the individually wrapped fruit because they wanted to sell it as a, no, everyone could eat it. It's yeah. not special. It's not a luxury item. It, it's every day. Eat it every day. It's eat cool. a lot look, of them. Look, Come on. Eat. I'll bite right into one. <laughs> look, this poor guy's eating one. What is this? Starburst? I got to unwrap each one? No. Put them all in a bowl. Throughout. Bobbing for oranges never took on. <laughs> took off. Throughout much of the push for Americans to consume oranges, there was this insistence that like, hey, yeah, this is, let's make this an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. Visualizing California in those days, like the mid 19th century was like already an alien concept to people in the Midwest and the East Coast until an 1884 novel, Ramona, was released, written by Massachusetts native Helen Hunt Jackson who had spent time out here she was a longtime friend of Emily Dickinson the novel was set in old California amongst like the ruins of the Spanish missions that were rendered inactive when the Mexicans defeated the Spanish for the area consult Los Angeles year one the narrative mm. depicts the life of the fading Spanish order the oppression of the Native American tribes here and the evasion of white settlers from the perspective of an illegitimate orphan Ramona in the novel <laughs> California Ramona <laughs> Uh, I'm just happy that we're both on the same page. We didn't know the lyrics, but we knew how it went. In the novel, California is like a romantic, dramatic paradise. And soon literary tours were made to show off the, quote, real life locations and it boosted tourism, even though Jackson died without making clear where the locations were actually based on. <laughs> the original esoteric. <laughs> this was a hotel, too. Great. That's, that's not true. Um, I'm just you being know, if Ramona did like <laughs> the golf, she would come here. You know, people have ponytails here, too. Hey, he's right. <laughs> the book was released a year 
year after Henry Huntington gained full control of a number of smaller railroads creating the Southern Pacific Sunset Route which connected mm-hmm. like you said Southern California with many other parts of the world consult you're killing me Larry the railroads were used for promoting California as a winter vacation destination to all those on the east coast that didn't know better because in the winters here there was a bit warmer so you can a bit <laughs> like 80 degrees warmer. yeah about 75 compared to like 20 <laughs> so around the 1890s as you said citrus packing houses wanted to distinguish their fruit crates from other wooden crates that were being shipped out at the same time and you wanted to make yours a little bit different previously the growers would stencil the names on the heads of their crates now paper labels had entered the game thus commercial advertising was a possibility the first labels were small circles of paper around six inches in diameter and they're placed at the center of a stencil design those circle labels were soon replaced with a larger rectangular labels which are 11 by 10 and each packing house had a name to identify their product a common theme was sunshine and landscapes and they were meant to sell scenes even in those early days they were selling more than just oranges with the ads they were selling sunshine health and wealth they were trying to rap at the time they didn't know nobody knew what they're talking about i mean lay a beat down what does that mean what rhymes with orange <laughs> as one writer puts it the hallmarks of southern california health wealth and sunshine it was edible gold they even called it golden apples for a while there was a brand oh yeah, yeah yeah that's right there was brands like victoria brand gypsy queen elk brand hollywood highbrow blue top sure no seeds which Love is one brand. name shining star and warrior to name a few but not all of them had anything to do with oranges or fruit or california some of them just use images that would catch attention bunny brand had a large ominous drawing of a stoic looking <laughs> rabbit with a small individually wrapped orange at the bottom it's really scary if the listener heard that screaming noise, that's the bunny. I'm going to upload that picture for sure because a bunny just looks like a terrifying ghost of a rabbit that's huge and then there's a little <laughs> orange at the bottom. Like, I'm scared. Some of the weird pictures I've seen of like a boy standing next to like a 40-foot orange and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. like a kid smiling and there's like he's missing teeth and there's yeah. just a grove behind him. Like, all right. <laughs> Athlete brand oranges had three athletes running towards a finish line. Royal Knight had an image of a proud knight on a horse with a castle behind him and in between, in the distance was an orange grove. Coed brand oranges out of Claremont had an image of a pretty college graduate in cap and gown smiling no orange in sight <laughs> in the 30s there was a fruit crate label with wc fields on it using an image from the film it's a gift the film itself is about a new jersey grocer who moves to california because he heard that he inherited some money and wants to fulfill his dream of owning a california orange grove it's one of his better ones is his nose the orange that's the joke you've oh man the twist ending more important than selling oranges which the crate was full of they were selling the origin of these oranges <laughs> that's what rhymes with oranges they were selling california these golden apples come from a place where the sun smiles happily upon the groves don't you want to move there yes <laughs> Yes, please. Backing houses created three different kinds of labels. One for high-grade fruit, one for mid-grade, and one for the bottom of the barrel. For mm-hmm. the, the Floridas. The, the, <laughs> the citrus was small, poorly textured, or ugly off. for Florida. Fugly. Ugly. Other Urban Dictionary. Okay. Let Urban Dictionary know. Uh, hello, Urban Dictionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? <laughs> it's an apple. That's how we say hi, because we're Urban Dictionary. Low-grade, ugly-looking fruit needed labeling, too, you know. One uh, brand called Mutt and uh, read, not much for looks, but ripe, sweet, and juicy. <laughs> Another brand was called Camouflage. The quality is on the inside. Oh, that makes me sad. Yeah, no, I feel like they're describing me. They're like the uh, Jelly Belly Jelly Flops. Like the, yeah. the defective Jelly Beans, yeah. which I love. They, these Somebody are the oranges they would sell while you're waiting in line at Ross. <laughs> we know that you had to beat up a small child to get these chinos, but, you know, here's some uh, really bad-looking oranges. They need love. Want some mutts? <laughs> Lithography was used to create the labels because it was one of the only ways at the time to mass-produce images. But as time went on, they eventually switched to zinc 
lithography, which I'm trying to get a, a better hold on the idea of both of them. One of them used stone and the other one used plates. I'm still kind of confused. Mm -hmm. They both ended up on paper. In the 1890s, <laughs> Max Schmidt, a San Francisco printer, got into the business of designing, printing, and selling orange crate labels. The important thing here was that he was not a grower. He saw an opportunity <laughs> to work with growers. I had to write that phrase so many times and like, you can't say he's not a grower. <laughs> you gotta find a better way to say that. And I just stopped my boots right through that. <laughs> this guy's a grower. He's a grother. He was the opposite of a shower. <laughs> Schmidt saw an opportunity to step up the quality of labeling fruit crates and he went for it. His staff artists were Othello Machetti and Archie Vasquez who was an LA native. Together, Schmidt lithography created a significant genre of folk art, the orange crate label. Although most growers used Although most growthers use colors and labels, which was important for showing California, these Schmidt labels use vibrant colors, later made famous by painter Maxwell Parrish. Colors with subtlety. There was apricot, cobalt blue, sea green, cinnamon. Like, they were really subtle colors. Was there orange? It was either red or yellow. They couldn't figure it out. They used real oranges. They just hinted down. It was part of the lithography. <laughs> I think I read that the question was like, which came first, the orange, the fruit, or the orange, the color? And I think it was the fruit. Really? Oranges made orange? Yeah. Isn't that weird? That orange is the new orange. How bizarre. It's like, we've never seen that color before <laughs> it was all very hard to wrap your head around yeah. what's an orange what would grow here schmidt encouraged each grower to collaborate with him in the creation of an individual label and then the gate was stepped up significantly the orange box label artists were mainly working in lithographs doing a wide variety of commercial artwork like show cards and posters and ads and business forms and stock certificates they were they were part of a company so you don't just do fruit crate labels it was part of your job it was just one of the things you did label design was a high pressure job staff artists were expected to work hard and produce quality quality work quickly. Consequently, there was a high turnover among lithograph house artists. You got tired of it and then you left and you went somewhere better or you started your own <laughs> company where you didn't have to do fruitcrete labels. You went to Disney. <laughs> and then you begged to be fired from Disney. <laughs> Many became freelance artists or switched firms often. And since this was a commercial work, it couldn't be signed. You were an artist cog and you worked in a corporation. You have to like the corporation as a whole. You can't I be like a... the sound of this. Now this is the America I want to live in. <laughs> so, Ayn Rand's America. <laughs> you shut up and put your head down. Nameless. So let's name a few artists because they're very rarely named. Ambrose Brenninger was the head of instructor of the Brino College of Lithography that taught many young artists how to work on these crate labels. The most influential was Charles Everett Johnson who was a native from Gilroy which is up on the 14th freeway. He was working at Lord and Thomas who was the main ad agency for uh, mm. Sunkist. He was working there and he was in charge of the Sunkist accounts in the meaty years the 20s to the 40s. He operated a freelance studio in LA with such beautiful fruit crate labels as the Sunny Cove labels which saying that without you knowing I'm just talking about like an ad but... <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll put pictures up. It was the uh, they do exist of their day. Exactly. There was the beef. <laughs> I was just trying to put that <laughs> phrase in my mouth. Like the beef, uh, which is where it went. Got orange. Duncan, just orange. The color of the fruit. Duncan Gleason was one of his employees who was a fine artist. Andrew Loomis was another one who worked, aside from fruit labels, he worked on Coca-Cola tray illustrations. Sam Hyde. Tray? Yeah, tray. I, yeah, trays. Like the things you would carry them? And like the fruit crates of soda bottles? I didn't think about that. I thought there was like TV dinner trays. That is all that came to mind didn't investigate, but that's probably what they meant was the carriers for soda. Either yeah. way makes just as much sense. Either way, they're irrelevant now. <laughs> Sam Hyde Harris, an award-winning poster and artist and easel painter in LA. Earl Cordry, Jimmy Swimmerton was a cartoonist. Adrian Apple, like apples and oranges. I assume people mm. told him that joke all the time. Trader. Ralph Baker, C.A. Beck. Ted Clark was a prolific artist who worked on fruitcake labels. J. Frank Derby studied in Los Angeles. He was the one who created the Orange Queen label that we lost our poo over at the Archive Bazaar. Yeah, is that the one I took? Yeah, that's the one you yeah. want. It's I not want. the one with the uh, cherubic little boy sitting on his belly. It's the lady. It's a lady and she's pretty. 
<laughs> the labels of Charles J. Dickman are really nice. They lovely California designs. She must not have been from Florida. <laughs> or else she'd have one eye. <laughs> and be turned to juice. <laughs> Felix Martini did a Highland Grove design that I think is really nice. He would, apparently would travel around California just do oil paintings of landscapes and then would like sell them to people. Hmm. So around 1907, the Fruit Growers Exchange was prospering and were shipping California oranges in record numbers. So I started thinking about advertising in more earnest ways. They were doing spectacular providing the packaging and shipping for growers, but now the exchange created the task for refashioning the American diet so that oranges would be included. It's very much like Inception, like we want to make them want it. We want you to ask <laughs> us for a thing that you don't know about. We can't just tell them they want it. They have to know that they want yeah. it. And they also need to know what it is first. <laughs> the orange would put to rest the anxieties of urban Americans. They would restore... It would, orange, what a sentence. I know. The, the orange was going to restore their health, vigor, and make them want to be one with nature again. If you were an urbanite who lived in like Chicago. Yeah, there, the most the urban place you can think of. Des Moines. <laughs> you jumped ahead. Is Des Moines really coming up? Yeah. Man, I must be some sort of witch man. Some sort of orange witch man. <laughs> the exchange would convince millions of Americans to eat millions of oranges. That was their job and they actually pulled it off. To do this, they needed a national campaign and for that, they needed help. There was some reluctance among board members of the exchange to put too much money into advertising because they wanted to concentrate more on banking on California's appeal instead of creating a brand and capitalizing it because then nothing would separate them from the many growers out there in the rest of in like Florida or whatever. It seemed like the trick was to do both. Create a recognizable brand name while still using the appeal of the Golden State to sell the idea of sunshine baked oranges. The exchange partnered with Southern Pacific's EO McCormick and allocated $10,000 towards sending a special orange train to Iowa, promoting the Oranges for Health, California for Wealth is the tag they went with. Close to Des Moines. Iowa was the center of the campaign, specifically Des Moines. Boy, and I cannot yeah. figure out why Iowa, but it was just probably, I'm sure they took a study like it's dead. In March, <laughs> it goes great with corn. In March of 1908, it was declared Orange Week in Iowa. <laughs> um, much like nowadays when it's like National Dog Day out of nowhere. It's like that. It was like, hey, we're making a thing, buy oranges. And the area would be granted with oranges by the carload direct from the beautiful groves of california they had read the choicest orange groves in the world which sure the exchange was working with an advertising group called like i said lord and thomas who now goes by foot cone and belding fcb global they should have stayed with lord and thomas <laughs> in creating a three-colored newspaper ad in black green and orange promoting the oranges it contained a cartoon by J. Dean. Jay and Jan and Dan, Jan and, Jan. And, Jan. Dan and Jean were part of this. Jan, Dan, Dean, and Jean were part of this. They're the new one people. Mary for every <laughs> There was a cartoon by J N Ding Darling. You can see why it was hard for me to say J N Ding Darling, and it was given space in the Des Moines Register. This was the first print ad for the California oranges, running in the March second Register of 1908. A lecturer was hired for Orange Week in Iowa to tour larger towns in Iowa and elaborate on the many adventures of the orange industry. Well, the nation saw increase of orange consumption business in iowa gained a stunning 50 percent after orange week my god yeah it worked while creating the campaign for iowa it was suggested that instead of using the exchanges if you peel it yeah, so when they came up with the name, Daniel mentioned this already, so I'm just going to go over it one more time. While creating the campaign in Iowa, it was suggested instead of using the exchange's name as a brand to reiterate the Southern Californian Fruit Growers Exchange. Well, it, was, it was just California Fruit California Growers, Fruit the Growers, CFGE. Because it wasn't just the South yeah. anymore. Someone but said, the South will rise again, <laughs> much like orange prices. Am I right? That's the, the comedian had a tour of Iowa that week. Am I right? I mean, I, I mean this thing's wrapped already. I mean, I'm, 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 I
Someone suggested as a brand name Sunkissed, K-I-S-S-E-D, a kiss by the sun. I got a blister in the sun. <laughs> Some board members resisted this because so many dealers already were familiar with the exchange's name. They, they thought they might lose business if they confused people, but they were. Uh. They told them go suck a lemon, which they could have. They were ample at that. <laughs> that uh, would only help business. They adopted the brand name Sunkissed with a T instead of the S-S-E-D. So now we have Sunkissed. Sunkissed spoke to both the sunshine in California and the orange itself. It was mm-hmm. sun. It was kissed by the sun. The exchange. It's perfect. They. Yeah. Peggy? Peggy. Peggy, we did it again. It's, it's perfect. It's a little bit different, but it's perfect. Peggy, don't tell me what happens past season two. It's a spoiler. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Peggy, who does Negan kill? Peggy. <laughs> Peggy, by God. <laughs> Peggy, please tell me. Did Negan make the Coca-Cola theme song? Peggy, did Negan kill modern advertising? <laughs> did Negan kill the radio star? Say it so, Peggy. <laughs> Peggy, does Walter White make it? <laughs> Peggy, please. Does the C word get him? Or is it the G word gun? Hey. <laughs> Peggy, for the love of God, tell me one thing. <laughs> Who shot JR? <laughs> it was a dream that we all had. As a nation, we had a dream together. But he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. The exchange became the first pharma group to advertise a perishable product in a national campaign. And a year later, the exchange registered the trademark Sunkiss. They were the first group, the co-op, that did this. What year was this? Around 1908. <laughs> to ensure that each little stamped sticker stayed on the piece of fruit, the exchange offered a promotional gift to consumers. For every 12 wrappers and 12 cents a consumer turned in, they would receive a sharp-pointed spoon for eating oranges cut in half. What? So a when you have a sharp-pointed spoon, like so, when you have an orange, you cut it in half, and you want to like dig oh, stuff out. Yeah. It's like a like spoon, a, but like it's a deep a, dish. Nature's deep dish pizza. Exactly, nature. <laughs> That's so weird to think like why there's little stickers on oranges now. Yeah, they don't come in crates anymore, so we have to put these stickers on. Yeah, the spoon idea though, the sharp point spoon was a success. They had thousands <laughs> of orders for that, and the exchange had to add knives and forks to the offer. The trademark replaced more than 200 individual brand names that were being used in 1901, dominated more like with acts like these. The orange and California were becoming interlocked as a symbol. So 1914 is the next year that the exchange would make a huge wave with advertising for California oranges. In that year, consumption of oranges by Americans had increased by 79%. That's ridiculous. From the next to no oranges years. People were so gullible. The rubes. <laughs> I keep, like every time I read, uh, when I was doing research, I'm like, you just pull a truck up and you say it's for sale, they'll buy it. Country pumpkins. That being said, I give money to everybody. <laughs> that being said, I own an orange truck. <laughs> Would you like to buy some oranges? I can't seem to sell them. In 1885, there were like no oranges sold. So their intent now was to push American values onto American. Americans even more and somehow make you want American wanna, values onto, onto Americans. They created they're, they're values. Recreating. Exactly. Recreating values and like, don't you want to be sunshine? Yeah. Don't you find morals good? I don't know. Maybe. Don Francisco, the future ad man for the exchange, was at the time of Don. Was a fruit inspector. Don's a fruit inspector. But moving up the <laughs> ranks at Lord and Thomas, Francisco continued pushing for oranges to be part of the daily diet and pushed for it to be a breakfast food since breakfast is a habit meal. Everyone has breakfast. Mm-hmm. He also believed that selling California meant selling oranges. He knew that these things were interlocked. In 1914, the exchange ran their first ad in a national circulating periodical, the Saturday Evening Post, which was a big deal. Not only because the Post was seen by millions of Americans, but it also seemed to echo and reinforce the image of modern America. Advertising in magazines wasn't exploited at the time, but it was about to be. <laughs> Francisco became the advertising manager in 1916, and him and a guy named Robert P. Crane, who worked for Lauren Thomas as a copywriter, his main uh, account was Sunkist. They hit upon a cluster of advertising themes, health, domestic happiness, prosperity, respectability. That would all be accomplished if you ate an orange, basically. That was an orange from California. You want to be respected? Eat an orange. You want to be wealthy? Eat an orange. You want to cure your scurvy? 
California orange. None of that Florida stuff. California. Making the orange part of breakfast was difficult, but he solved it when he found a functioning juice extractor, and so they ran the campaign, drink an orange. Now you think something like orange juice was just come upon naturally, like a, like a woman gets tired of chewing, so she squeezes it into a cup, like an organic process that seems so obvious that Why everyone partakes. Why does it have to be a woman? Why can't men invent anymore? Because I wouldn't want it. Squeeze through those burly paws? No. He's trying to compete with me. If a woman does it, it's motherly. It's nice. <laughs> if a man does it, what do you want from me? You're trying to tell me that I can't do that too? You'd think it's like a thing that like generations had like, yeah, you just squeeze an orange and nope. Team mm-hmm. of admin sitting around screaming so at, screaming at out of fruit. Why can't we make more money off of you? How do you make more money for us? <laughs> orange juice was being pushed by the exchange's advertising men as part of a healthy breakfast regime or ritual, however they wanted to push it. They were intent on creating a juice habit. Sunkiss quickly developed its own electrically powered juice extractors and offered it at a cost to fountain operators. And by 1932, 66,000 juicers were in operation and Sunkiss could claim that drinking orange juice had turned into a ritual. It was being marketed as... so weird. It is so weird. It was being marketed as being better than artificial drinks. It's not even the best juice. Apple's better. It's not as cold. I mean, I guess the pulp can kind of freeze a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Uh, I can't have oranges or orange juice because I've asked the reflux, so I I had to wave goodbye to that. So I got (laughs) to... The California dream will never be yours. (laughs) I just drink alcohol instead, which is uh, <laughs> the new can, California dream. <laughs> by 1922, they could quote doctors' studies in claiming that oranges contained something called vitamins, <laughs> spelled V-I-T-A-M-I-N-E at the time. Vitamins. Vitamins. And when they were being used, they were saying that in ads, juice and vitamin C were good and good for you, helps keep the body young. These campaigns were directly aimed at middle-class hopes for a good moral life, and by doing so, further linked these hopes with a subliminal association to Southern California. After they ran their first ad in Saturday Evening Post, they spent two years after that placing advertisements in over 500 daily newspapers and more than a dozen national magazines, as well as a recipe books, and continued promoting on posters you'd see on billboards, on streetcars. Francisco was also working on creating quality crate labels still. He was very influential in the label design of the 20s with these principles. The label should be designed and the brand should be selected with a buyer in mind. The brand name should be short and both the brand name and the label should be simple. The brand name and the label should be prominent. The label should suggest the contents of the package. The label should be pleasing and artistic. The label or the brand name should suggest the source of the fruit. Crate labels in the 20s and 40s, they all had these sort of things. They're like, oh yeah, there's a giant font there, simple name, there's a little scene there and everything's really simple. So is Don Don Francisco is a person. Yeah. His name, is, his first name is Don. Yeah, he's not a, he's, he didn't work on a mission. Okay. Yeah, There's, Donald. Yeah, is, Donald is, Francisco. Is that where Donald Duck orange juice comes from? <gasps> we figured it out. He's Donald Duck. <laughs> Isn't Don Francisco also a coffee brand or something? I don't know. I could just think of Sanka. That's him. Yeah, that's him. Among other things, they push oranges for health. Health. This is healthy for you. It's good for you. This is going to keep you alive. Oranges were prominent in these images, but you'd see themes that existed before that Francisco thought could relate to health and prosperity and exotic element of Southern California. Some imagery you'd see, you'd see women and children, you see birds and animals, entertainment properties, which was kind of weird. <laughs> things like Caesar, the Sheik, Egyptian, Cleopatra, Don Juan. Also brands like actor, film star, Hollywood, Broadway, coming out of Pomona and Downey. You saw storybook characters, stylized images. There's a really nice one of Art Deco Peacock with a little individually wrapped orange mm-hmm. art deco butterflies yet fairies they got really creative and fun so the ability for americans to travel across the country was becoming much easier as our ability to communicate longer distances was more available to us although it was 40 years after railroads were expanding out the radio was connecting the nation together too after world war one which at the time they were calling the only world war we're going to have <laughs> commercial broadcasting began and yet we still keep calling it world war one <laughs> world war prime world war gold commercial broadcasting began near the start of the 20s and presidential election was 
results could be broadcast. Prize fights, radio cereals were like reaching the living rooms of America. That's another homes. way they tried to get us to eat cereal. The shadow is eating Lucky Charms. <laughs> yeah, I don't know cereal at the time. They didn't have cereal. They had powdered milk and oatmeal. And <laughs> Nothing stuff. was lucky back then. Yeah. You're going to listen to some Irish mentality eating cereal? What's going on? I thought we lived in America. Powdered milk and dead tree leaves. That was, that was their cereal. <laughs> Throughout that decade, automobiles became more and more popular. And by the 30s, one in five Americans owned one. Then the Depression hit and then you had to sell it. Mm. Cars also ruined the picturesque Los Angeles blue skies that you would see in fruit grape labels and smog was another 10 years away so mm, great. I'll be getting to that. Americans were putting an emphasis on the good life full of sunshine and health and youth and it's gold. It's a good life. It's a be, be nice, nice to the be boy. Be nice to the boy. Be nice to the boy. Our favorite Twilight Zone episode. Be, be nice, nice to the to boy. The boy. <laughs> Which brings us to our mid-episode plug. Listen yes. to our Twilight Zone episode uh, on This, this is, is Rad, Rad, the podcast. We had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. With uh, Kyle Clark. Kyle Clark from The Nerdist and other things and comedy and Matt Burnside and Natalie Hazen. And us. Uh, oh, yeah. We're there, too. We're there, too. Unfortunately. Uh, listen to it. Uh, proceed. People living in cold Midwest towns looking for warm temperatures, people living in that hellhole that was New York or other big cities were looking for natural, beautiful landscapes. So these orange ads were like, I don't want to say it's all they had, but it was like, oh yeah, that's a go west. There was an unsaid westward expansion tone to some of it. And with that, you better believe there was a, you can make a buck from that. Money, 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 money. That's the sound the trains made going out to California. Money, 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 With the radio once again. With the radio once again, the exchange is looking how to use this to advertise they have enough money to experiment and since that old noise box is popular why not squeeze some orange juice all over it <laughs> some kiss sponsors the, don't do that <laughs> you have to buy another one somehow i feel like orange juice is much more you'll get so much more electrocuted than with any because it's so acidic yeah you're gonna it's an explosive device they use it in c4 you talking about c4 <laughs> <laughs> Duncan. <laughs> Sunkiss sponsors the first ever commercial radio broadcast between California to the East Coast. They do that. The first company to use motion picture stars on the radio as well, Sunkissed. Really? And, yeah. What station was it? KSUN? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was uh, one of the CBS stations, I believe. In 1928, Sunkiss sponsored a program hosted by famed Hollywood gossip monster Luella Parsons. Parsons was one of... <laughs> gossip monster. Gossip monster. It's funny, I kept writing her name like, how do I know that name? And I looked it up like, oh, that's how, and like, because everyone hated her. <laughs> Parsons was the first American movie columnist, and she was pretty hated in the Hollywood community since her opinions would affect box office receipts. It's said that William Randolph Hearst kept her around because she praised Marion Davies, who was his mistress. She was incredibly popular in the newspapers of the day. On the program, she would have featured TV stars where they would discuss the juiciest, pun intended, Ooh. gossip. In between catty remarks, Parson would hawk oranges and other Sunkiss products. That's how it was done in the day. This rumor of an affair brought to you by <laughs> Grow Valley Oranges. It hasn't gotten better if you watch shows or like answer a phone. They're like, obviously, oh, I have the new Apple here. What's that? I'm, I'm talking to you on my new iPhone right now. So it, like, like it's gotten better. We've gone from oranges to Apple. <sighs> Think about it, Think everybody. Think about it. It's the new California industry. It used to be oranges. Now it's apples. Somebody says country. Interesting. I'm not sure if the description I read was for another Sunkiss program or they just didn't want to mention Parsons, but from a description I read, it ran every Wednesday for half an hour. It featured colorful Spanish music, Spanish in quotations, interspersed with the announcements on the superior richness, healthfulness, and flavors of Sunkiss oranges and orange juice. That was just like uh, plugs, 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 Spanish music, plugs, 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 it's, Parsons. It's so, it's like watching an infomercial. But yeah. People, but that was like the only entertainment. <laughs> All stations were broadcasting infomercials back then. 
I don't know if it was called the Sunkissed Musical Cocktail Show or That's if that funny. was another Sunkissed Parsons Radio. But anyways, there's an LP that exists and it's digitized if you want to hear it <laughs> online. And you can hear Anne Harding talk about Rudolph Valentino, which is <laughs> like every description of me talking about I Love Lucy. It's like, yeah, Clark Gable, whoever that is, is talking about <laughs> Gina Lola Bridget or whoever that is. Her best friend of me was another gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, and she got her own yeah. Sunkissed show in 1939, 10 years later. Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, which played on CBS stations in smaller American cities like Portland or Pittsburgh. Hedda Hopper had an even worse reputation. She was mm-hmm. the, the most hated, the most arrogant columnist in Hollywood. It was I think rum- she wore crazy hats. I think so too, yeah. I think I saw a picture of her with a crazy hat. It's rumored that Charlie Chaplin left America in the 40s because of Hopper's constant attacks on him for his sexual yeah. prowess, politics, and communist affiliation. <laughs> yeah, that's why he left. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't scare him away with saying we we're going to arrest him for having sex with young women. I'm wondering if this is the same trip where upon trying to come back to the government wouldn't let him in because of his ties to communism. Consult <laughs> Red as a new blacklist mm-hmm. for that. Also, he was Chinese. I think you might be thinking of Charlie Chan. <laughs> oh, no. No. All of those Halloween idea <laughs> costumes. <laughs> I'm Charlie Chaplin. I'm sure you're not. I'm pretty sure that you're not Charlie Chaplin. Anyways, she had a show because oranges needed to get sold. It aired three times a week for 15 minutes on CBS until 1942. Both of these shows, as appealing as they sound now, were doing the job of attracting people to Hollywood mm-hmm. and showcasing the real-life dramas of southern part of the Golden State. So is Orange is the New Black not an advertisement by Sunkiss? I, I keep watching. They sound chickens to me. <laughs> Some kids would take out space in magazines where stars would share their recipes that used oranges. Myrna Loy of The Thin Man had a Here Are My Four Favorite Orange Recipes full page ad. Her four favorite orange ginger ale. Orange Ooh, Charlotte. Wait a minute now. That sounds pretty I good. I like that. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Orange Charlotte. What's that? It's a dessert. Fruit meat salad. Sounds wrong. Oh. Sun- Don't make us food. lince food from forties <laughs> one more time. And the sun kissed salad bowl, oh, uh, no. which feel, whoa, whoa, it feels like the same. It was a base of cream cheese, <laughs> and then you top that off with wet orange, and then on top of that, you put the rinds. <laughs> salad and and you're covered up with lettuce just so you don't have to look at it (laughs) but like the lettuce that's barely not paper (laughs) under her recipes there's a blurb that starts with the headline how oranges aid health it also states that it has vitamin c a and b and calcium contained also hitler's scared of them (laughs) i was just trying to think of how americans would sell oranges hitler doesn't like them you hate hitler eat oranges we're gonna turn these into bullets by the 30s the naturalistic advertising of landscapes and healthy cherubs and overalls eating oranges was starting to phase out and a new approach of commercial art was stepping in now that fruitcake labels were becoming less of a selling tool, less than billboards and magazine ads. After Francisco came, the new Sunkist ad manager, William Gessinger, who started in 1925 and worked with Sunkist until like the mid-30s. They wanted to branch out and see their ads affect all types of Americans, from rural mountain people to busybody professors in New England. Gessinger relied heavily on statistics and surveys. Francisco had begun this in his campaign, but Gessinger literally went door-to-door inside homes and asked harder questions. From his assessments, which took years to collect an insane amount of data, they were able to drop things like demographics and age, if it was rural and urban. Apparently, seventy. 51% of the food dollar was spent by women. Urban dwellers who made up 59% of the total population spent 70% of the $9.7 billion on food every year. They were discovering how to implant the want for oranges still. Aside from continuing on radio and in magazines, they also began hitting up larger grocers and in, by 1940, half of all stores retailing citrus displayed California oranges in their windows. Again, due to what the orange already symbolized, health and sunshine, the orange itself is a beautiful object, so it, of course it's display worthy. Behold, I hold in my hands a noble orange you're cute i'm gonna call you a cutie
Citrus fairs and orange shows have been popular since the early years of the 20th century, taking place in San Bernardino mostly, little out of county, but what do you want? By the 30s, they became national orange shows, and their ads used some of the orange crate labels as posters for the events. In 1932, the show commemorated George Washington's 200th birthday, and they also celebrated... Still the th- alive and kicking. <laughs> they also celebrated the 32... Because of oranges. <laughs> so it's keeping him alive, and he wants to be dead, but we won't let him. <laughs> no, and the nation needs him now more than ever. <laughs> they celebrated the 32 Olympic Games when they came to oh. town, which is pretty cool. They had a big to-do. It was part theme park, part trade show, part agricultural exposition, and part theater. There was fireworks and oranges, obviously. Thousands, <laughs> thousands of people would come to <laughs> oh, these orange shows. We forgot the oranges. <laughs> In the 40s, almost at the end of World War II, which was the second of the World Wars, <laughs> uh, the exchange was awarded... Second of many to come. <laughs> the exchange was awarded with the War Food Administration's A, like the grade, A flag in recognition of outstanding achievements in the production of essential food. This was presented to the Exchange Orange Products Company, which dealt with the Sunkist Orange Products Division. Words. Mm-hmm. Sunkist was the first company in Southern California to get this, and the second in the state to receive this. This was like a big deal. By the 1950s, everything was starting to change. Chain supermarkets were taking over small grocers, and packing houses were being converted for the containers for oranges were changing. The era of fruitcake labels ends in the 50s when cardboard replaces wood, as wood was too expensive. The cost of labor for assembling boxes rose, and cardboard containers were developed to withstand worse weather conditions. Paper labels and cardboard proved to not get along very well. <laughs> the new cardboard boxes contained simple product ideas identification designs pre-printed on the boxes already. That was the end of the era for fruitcake labels. Mm. In the 70 years that they existed from 1880 to the late 50s, some 8,000 designs were created used on over 2 million boxes of oranges. Ridiculous. By the 50s, the end of the aggressive orange advertisements, or at least the golden age, was coming to an end. The reason was simple. They won. Los Angeles and Southern California were full of suburbs and post-war Americans were just riddled with PTSD and civil rights violations. They were here. There was no more room to do oranges here. Now that people were here and realizing that, yes, this is a land of sunshine, but also of small and traffic and people, in 1952, the California Fruit Growers Exchange officially changed their name to Sunkist. And they're headquartered in Sherman Oaks, the building yeah. you can see off of 101. Yeah! Yeah! And for a company that creates such beautiful imagery, that building is plenty boring. <laughs> I think it's nice. It's okay. It's a sun kissed on it. I keep wanting to like, I got to get a picture of this for the podcast, but like, well. I'm How many accidents are you going to cause trying to do that? <laughs> How many more lives must be <laughs> lost we? for sun kiss? In the 60s, sun kiss began airing television commercials, but concentrated, pun intended, on lemons and <laughs> again. lemons on black and white TVs. Okay. In 64 was when Oranges, the foundation of the company, got its own TV commercials. And the following year, 1965, they broadcast in new color televisions. A newspaper. They could only get orange in the early days. <laughs> we that? only said one color. I want that blur red uh, orange. Newspaper coupons were beginning to be used more commonly in the late 60s and Sunkist was all over that. Some landmarks through the last 60, 70 years. In 1977, the year disco and punk had America shouting, leave us alone. Sunkist licensed its trademark for the bottling and marketing of orange soda. Mm-hmm. Who trademarks orange soda? <laughs> Mel from marketing. <laughs> in 1990, Sunkist revenues topped the $1 billion mark in a single year and three years later, Sunkist, formerly the Growers Exchange, is believed to be the first agricultural cooperative in the country to re- reached 100 years of consecutive service. Wow. They did it. By Son God, of a gun, they did, they did it. it. Son, S-U-N. <laughs> of a gun, G-O-N. There, I finally perfected it. <laughs> it took forever, Dan and Gene. Dan and Jeans, that's me right now. <laughs> you basically gave the gist of why there's no oranges anymore. Time to stretch it out over 20 minutes. Mm, do it. Like for most of us in LA, death is a slow process with many causes. The Sunset Boulevard. To begin with, orange growing was never easy because nature itself was always trying to put an end to it. Yeah. Pests and disease were a constant threat 
that even as far back as 1880, a bug called the Cottony Cushion Scale. You're crazy. It's real. That's, that's my favorite band. That's my favorite blues band. <laughs> I love playing in the Cottony Cushion Scale. <laughs> this weird thing came to LA via San Francisco, via Australia, via New Zealand, and quickly there were millions of them that would suck the sap out of orange trees and led to what growers were calling the Cottony Plague. The hottest dance that season. <laughs> Come on, do the Black Death. It'll leave you dying. Do the ER mash. <laughs> Everybody boobonic. <laughs> this was happening and they appealed to the USDA for help so they sent a guy to the Bugs homeland of New Zealand and he came back with a bunch of Vidalia beetles who are the natural predators of the cottony cushion scales. And this is how J.R.R. Tolkien got his start. <laughs> this is the worst New Zealand invasion <laughs> since the first one. Yeah. They brought these things and when they were unleashed in 1888 it only took a few months for the whole plague to be cured. Like the beetles oh, wow. ate all of these bugs but it wasn't always as easy as bringing a bunch of bugs from New Zealand to fix all of our problems again especially since navel oranges slowly became the dominant orange because normally when you grow things from seeds there's a lot of diversity among the offspring everything's everybody's different that's what everyone teaches me that's and what I, I refuse that's to what believe I'm it told repeatedly by my <laughs> ACLU agent <laughs> But I don't get how. But since the navel was a seedless mutant, there was wow, no... that was rude. Call the ACLU. I dare you. <laughs> so there was no biodiversity amongst them. So if something hits that can kill one navel tree, it could kill all navel wow. trees. Because they're all the same. Yeah. The trees have pretty much been faced with a constant bombardment of threats for decades. In the 50s, a virus known as Tristeza, the most Italian of viruses, it threatens 70% of all orange trees in the state. In 19 a medfly pest outbreak hit California and helicopters. They had to fly over the groves in El Monte, Baldwin Park, West Covina, and Irwindale and just spray chemicals like Agent Orange. Wow. <laughs> but literally. It killed the pe- <laughs> it killed the pests, but these things would still come back every single year. So like nature was na- life finds a way. In 2008, an infestation of Asian citrus facilid swept into the state and the most infected part of LA was Echo Park and they had to be sprayed down with chemicals. That was 2008. It's so bad that as of 2011, LA became one of the counties in Southern California whose citrus nursery stocks cannot leave the state. You can't do it. And any orange, they're like Chinese people trying to leave the country. (laughs) Any orange fruit from here in general has to have all the leaves and stems removed before you can like take it across state lines. But that was just the bugs and diseases they had to deal with. The precious LA climate that has once been so good to the oranges started to turn against them also. And all of us too. Don't forget the humans that live here. (laughs) Nah. I'm worried about the oranges. I'm hanging 10. (laughs) Minutes to live. (laughs) Oranges are very sensitive to the cold, so in winter, to keep them from dying, they developed these things called smudge pots. They were essentially heaters, but since oil was so plentiful in LA, these things ran off of just the grossest of oil, and in doing so, they blew this thick, dark smoke all over the orange groves. So during the day, the orange groves were this beautiful image of paradise that they were selling, and then at night, the night would fall and they turn into these, like, Mad Max death camps. Like, it's it's really frightening to see but people believed it was the smoke that was protecting the trees at night so the smokier the better even though it was leaving these black stains all over the fruit the growers exchange started broadcasting on knx 1070 news radio in los angeles to give nightly forecasts of how dangerous it was going to be that night for oranges in january 1922 it was so cold and there were so many smudge pots going that it created a black cloud over the coast so thick that they had to close san pedro bay because they couldn't get the lighthouse 
has to burn bright enough to cut through the smoke. But it wasn't even wow. it wasn't even just smoke. They called it smudge, which is not smog. Smudge is like thick smog. Like you could almost touch it. It's just like oil floating what in the, the air. Smudge. <laughs> what the smudge? <laughs> Goober! <laughs> You've been running the smudge pot all night. Gosh, Shazam. So then again on Christmas Day, nineteen Christmas Day, nineteen twenty-four, <laughs> there was so much smudge in the air in LA that it looked like an eclipse was happening. And not what? only did the port have to be shut down again, but a Pacific electric rail car derailed and killed somebody because they couldn't see. They say oh that God, yeah, this you're is killing me, Larry. <laughs> this is the part of all of those orange crates that you don't see. <laughs> Why does this orange crate have a single upturned Pacific Rail car? <laughs> so this Christmas Day, 1924, they say this was a turning point in smudge pot use, but things still didn't change for quite a while. It wasn't until 1931 that a bill was passed to cut down on how much pollutants a smudge pot could give out, but still, it was a lot of pollutants. Yeah. So then in 1937, an 18-year-old orange worker. Naran Harrows, as they were called, named Juan Velasquez, died in the valley when a smudge pot exploded onto him. Jesus. And that year they set up stricter anti-smudge ordinances, but they still kept using them and they were so bad for the environment. Like people, they would have to cover up their furniture to keep smudge from getting all over it and windows had to be constantly cleaned. Some schools, they couldn't even open until the smudge was cleaned out of them and it was safe for kids to come in. Industry. There's big business. Big business. LA. Clean air. Smudge. Smudge. <laughs> smudge monster. What do you want? Smudge or smog well we got both so you can't choose during world war ii smudge pot you know that second one smudge pots were even encouraged because during the air raid blackouts they hoped that the smudge fires would confuse any japanese planes and make them think they were factories instead of orange groves and attack there instead that just feels sad for us that's all like oh my god what have they done by 1947 smudge pots were mostly outlawed so they started moving towards things like big fans to blow the frost off of the groves at night but by then the oranges had a new threat to face in the form of car pollution like you said, but the most immediate reason that the oranges are now gone is, again, like you said, the development boom of LA post-World War II. All those marketing campaigns to get people to move to California to Orange Paradise worked a little bit too yeah. well. Between 1940 to 1950, the population in California went from 6.9 to 10.6 million people, and many of those came right here to Los Angeles. Housing became more profitable than orange growing, so all these groves had to be raised to make room for all the new residents. As the city got urbanized, orange production fled up north to the San Joaquin Valley where good old farmland was still welcomed. Yeah. LA collapsed first and, and then it spread south through the Orange Curtain as they called it into Orange County and then through Riverside and San Bernardino. But the thing is, things have been slowly getting worse and worse for so long that a lot of the growers welcome the suburbanization just so they could cash out of this. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I just want to float on a cloud of smudge. I just want to eat apples. <laughs> Suddenly I don't like them. <laughs> Did I ever mention I'm allergic? The great age of the orange was really between 18 90 to about 1950 like that was when yeah. orange was the thing it was said during the 1930s and 40s that driving through southern california you could smell the orange blossoms for 100 miles away oh, God, and imagine. you could taste the smudge for 200 <laughs> comedian fred allen said that california is a fine place to live if you happen to be an orange it's funny humor when will it develop i thought rod serling said something like that la is a great place to live if you're a grapefruit but it turns out the grapefruit was a doll <laughs> He was the grapefruit all along. <laughs> Again, listen to this is rad. We talk about Twilight. <laughs> in 1920, the Fruit Growers Exchange was making about, it was still called that at the time, they were making about $100 million a year in sales. Throughout the decade, orange growing was second in profit only to oil in California. This is why during that decade, things like the Orange Julius were invented. Listen 
to our City Bites episode. Yeah. Between those ever-present world wars, Citrus made more money in LA than airplanes and filmmaking combined. Crazy. Like those two businesses. Crazy. Yeah. In 1924, there were over 52,000 acres of oranges in LA County, sending out 20 million boxes a year. The peak seems to have been in 1945 with 350,000 acres in California. But by 1956, that number was already down to 250,000. The U.S. now grows over 25 billion oranges a year, and California still takes in about a billion a year from mm-hmm. oranges, but we're still second to Florida these days. Way back when Saunders from the USDA, our old yeah. friend from Riverside, well, he didn't... He- this old, our old friend from our old friend from Riverside had sent some naval samples to Florida as well, but it didn't take in that climate. So Florida is still mostly Valencia's while California is mostly navels. It's also important to realize that lemons and grapefruits were a big part of this as well, but the marketing on oranges was so good that they're all people really focus on. Yeah. Sunkiss takes in about a billion dollars a year and they now do things like soda and candy, but they're still a cooperative of sorts with thousands of members in California and Arizona. They moved their headquarters in 2014 to Valencia, but their old building, which was opened in 1971 at 14130 Riverside Drive in Sherman Oaks. It's still there. It has their name on it. It's beautiful, despite what Greg says. A company called IMT Residential is now planning to preserve this building while also turning it into a sustainable living complex and using the building itself as offices and retail stores okay. so you can live there one day, maybe. Yeah. Most or- God willing. God willing, I can live in an orange factory. <laughs> Most oranges left in LA are just in people's backyards, but there's still a grove at the Huntington Botanical Gardens next to Huntington's mausoleum but the biggest one is right here at california state university northridge the valley was a huge part of the orange industry especially once the owens valley aqueduct opened in 1913 in the 1920s land in san fernando which was very close to the aqueduct and a slightly higher elevation land there was going for up to five thousand dollars an acre which was eight times as much as land in other areas the 1930s was really the peak in the valley with some fifteen thousand acres mostly valencia's and with so many packing houses here almost 500 rail cars a year were being sent out just from valley produce. But the valley was hit hard by suburbanization. By the early 1970s, there were only 350 acres of oranges left there. By the 90s, there were only about 40 acres left. What's left there now is concentrated on the CSUN campus, which has been protected by the Associated Student Union since 1972. They apparently weren't that great at protecting it because it has shrunk over the years. In the 90s, they had 500 trees over 7 acres, but new parking lots were put in and the Valley Performing Arts Center. So today, there are about 400 trees over five acres. Some of the trees are as old as 1952 and the school perpetually wants to tear them down to put more things on top of it. Sunkiss Growers has donated 150 trees to help replace some of their dying ones. The fruit's free to pick if you want, although they are disgusting. Charities like the Institute for Sustainability and Food Forward go there about twice a year to pick fruit to donate to local food banks and they end up getting some 15,000 pounds of them. So go get some for yourself to deprive from people who actually need it. They all have scurvy. Did we mention that? <laughs> it's bizarre. I feel like so many times we come across something that's like, yeah, it brought all the people here. It wasn't even the movie industry. And it's people want to come to California. Yeah, for whatever reason. For, oh, yeah. You, got, yeah. Uh, 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 you guys have mailboxes? We'll be there. Dragon Parade. I want to come. <laughs> the other day I was thinking about conversations we were having before we started this. And one of them was that people would complain that we have no culture here in Los Angeles. And like every episode, I'm like, mm, that's not true. <laughs> How about citric culture? Yeah. Constantly 
only things that are coming out of California like the first time that's happened. It's so weird. Like every single thing we try to tackle, it's like, well, this was the, the first fr- ever. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very odd. It's again, like one of those things like the, uh, the rail car, the yeah, exactly. Pacific Electric and all that was like such a huge part of the city and yeah. is now gone. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, the city is completely, completely turned raised. over. Yeah. <laughs> there was a purge. Everything's turning into parking lots or bullets. <laughs> it's all just parking lots and pokey restaurants now. <laughs> Doing the research on this one, like I was like at work reading about oranges and then getting so like yeah. about to pass out like i gotta get home and eat an orange i'm so, i was like the godfather <laughs> i was looking at all these orange crate labels and like there has to be a grove i could drive and then this, this was the only one and i was like there has to be a grove i could drive by or something we went to pick some to try to yeah. see like well we got we got to taste the history i could barely even lick it well they looked orange in the sun and then we took them out and they were yellow <laughs> yeah. and they were bruised and then yeah you licked one and even holding it like this isn't right there's something wrong with this <laughs> i'm gonna start eating my orange that you brought oh, me you brought me a cutie cutie for a cutie stop get out of here get out of here (laughs) two out of the last three episodes ends with you eating whatever we were talking about you ate a witch in the last episode (laughs) eat oranges be part of the american culture southern california culture excuse me more specifically taste the rainbow oh no oh no wait that's wrong one skittle culture of southern california it is odd to think that so much of the push was created by a company and that's what happens and it was you know early 20th century and you always think like oh that that might happen much later in that century no it was pretty early but like it you know it wasn't the worst thing ever it was for a fruit and not like heroin come buy some (laughs) it was for a really sunny california heroin (laughs) i'm eating my orange also okay yeah but like these images were created that that are like the fruit crate labels are collector items not if you could find them because yeah they're and they're really nice yeah they they really are very nice yeah in in trying to come up with logos for our thing i was looking at fruit crate labels for Mm -hmm. such a long time and i was like i could draw one (laughs) those are beautiful landscapes i can draw one do you think you're don francisco (laughs) ole what do you think father francisco i was very surprised that Sunkissed started because I'd always seen the Sunkissed thing, but I had no idea. Like, oh, it started. Here. I always thought of it as like a sugar-coated can- like fruit candies and soda, and I was like, oh, that's all they do. I forgot, like, oh yeah, real oranges, and like they've been working as this other group since like the late 19th century, and they did everything, and they got Myrna Loy to put an ad out in the paper. <laughs> Poor Myrna Loy. If you'd like to make us as famous as Myrna Loy. <laughs> Go on iTunes and leave us... (laughs) Greg's doing the Godfather to me. (laughs) 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 I could have been a contender. (laughs) Oh, you fought it. Wait, what are you going to (laughs) say? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. makes it easier for people to find us, new listeners. If you have an iPhone, it's as easy as going to your podcast app, putting in LA Meekly. You're already logged in. Boom. Five stars. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. You can find us on Facebook, LA Meekly. You can find us on Instagram, LA underscore. Meekly. We put pictures every day. You'll see some orange pictures from the Seasun Grove and yeah. uh, me moments before a fatal car crash. <laughs> Take a picture of the Sunkiss thing from the 101. Twitter. On Twitter at Ali Meekly. You can email us la.meekly at gmail.com. We are doing field trip episodes. So if you have, Which will be coming out soon. Very soon, we promise. If you work at a place of historical significance or cultural significance in Los Angeles and you'd like us to come visit uh, for, with comp tickets and we'll interview, uh, comp we'll tickets, interview and, uh, on the spot and we will release that as a quick episode it's yeah. something we're trying to do more often uh, go to our main hub lameekly.tumblr.com 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 I tried to cover up 
for Greg's disgusting eating habits, and then I fumbled. I over spit myself. all over my lap trying to say it. <laughs> Thanks again. You can catch us on this is rad. It's no, fun. Are there, it a fun are there Radtober? I believe yeah. it's called, which is now Radvember. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Chris Jepson from the Orange County oh, yeah. Archives because we met him at the Archives Bazaar, and I yeah. sent him an email with some questions, and he helped out. And also David Boulay, author of The Orange and the Dream of California. I emailed him. Such we also book. met him. Yeah. He answered some questions, and yeah, the book's really good. Yeah, it's it's like easy to read. It's like a fun textbook, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a weird thing to say, but it's like a good When a I good say that there's book. a lot of great pictures, I don't mean that it's only pictures, yeah. but the pictures are so appealing, and yeah. you're like, oh yeah, and yeah, it isn't a task to read it. It's very enjoyable. Put that on the back cover. It isn't a task to read this. <laughs> Two hosts of a thing no one likes. Any last words? No. Well then. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening. I hope to see you next month. It's going to be our creepy Christmas oh, yeah, again. Exciting. Very excited to figure out what we're going to talk about because we I have no idea. I thought this was the scary one. Oh no. Oh, oh no. The smudge. The smudge. The <laughs> New intro. <gasps> Ooh. An outro. We can start doing outros. We'll do an outro. We'll just take six hours to write it <laughs> after an eight hour work day and no one will like them. <laughs> That's perfect. It's perfect. A little bit different, but it's perfect. All right. Well, well, that's enough of this. We, we've put you through enough. Everyone, I'm so sorry. Good night. That has been uh, yet another episode of LA Meekly sucking down smudge since 2013. Uh, boo. Boo. Stop. Stop.